Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of Stories That Made Us. For this week's tale, we head over to the land of the rising sun, the mighty country of Japan. Japanese myths have traditionally been passed down through oral traditions, for through most of Japan's history, its communities were predominantly isolated from one another. This allowed for local legends and myths to grow around the unique features of the geographic location where the people who told the stories lived. We shall find examples of this throughout our four tales, where the stories are tied tightly to their geographic regions. The two main sources of Japanese myths that are most recognized and widely known are the texts of Kojiki and Nihonsoki or Nihongi. These ancient texts delve into the creation of the gods and the world, and from there continue to cover the origins of the Japanese people and the monarchy. Old listeners would have listened to the tale of Japanese creation myth in episodes 35, 36 and 37 of the first series. Those tales were all taken from the Kojiki and Nihongi and are a marvelous account of the trials and tribulations faced by gods and goddesses as they shape the world we live in today. This week, we have four tales from this beautiful land, all courtesy of the book titled Old World Japan, Legends of the Land of the Gods by Frank Reinder, details of which are in the show notes. So then, let's begin with our first tale, titled Autumn and Spring. A fair maiden lay asleep in a rice field. The sun was at its height, and she was weary. Now a god looked down upon the rice field. He knew that the beauty of the maiden came from within, that it mirrored the beauty of heavenly dreams. He knew that even now, as she smiled, she held converse with the spirit of the wind or the flowers. The god descended and asked the dream maiden to be his bride. She rejoiced, and they were wed. A wonderful red jewel came out of their happiness. Long, long afterwards, the stone was found by a farmer, who saw that it was a very rare jewel indeed. He prized it highly, and always carried it about him. Sometimes, as he looked at it in the pale light of the moon, it seemed to him that he could discern two sparkling eyes in its depths. Again, in the stillness of the night, he would awaken and think that a clear, soft voice called him by name. One day, the farmer had to carry the midday meal to his workers in the field. The sun was very hot, so he loaded a cow with bowls of rice, the millet dumplings and the beans. Suddenly, Prince Amaboko stood in the path, and he was angry, for he thought that the farmer was about to kill the cow. The prince would hear no word of denial. His wrath increased. The farmer became more and more terrified, 
and finally took the precious stone from his pocket and presented it as a peace offering to the powerful prince. Amaboko marveled at the brilliancy of the jewel and allowed the man to continue his journey. The prince returned to his home. There, he drew forth the treasure and it was immediately transformed into a goddess of surpassing beauty. Even as she rose before him, he loved her. And before the moon waned, the two were wed. The goddess ministered to his every want. She prepared delicate dishes, the secret of which was known only to the gods. She made wine from the juice of a myriad herbs, wine such as mortals would never taste. But after a time, the prince became proud and overbearing. He began to treat his faithful wife with cruel contempt. The goddess was sad and said, You are not worthy of my love. I will leave you and go to my father. Amaboko paid no heed to these words, for he did not believe that the threat would be fulfilled. But the beautiful goddess was in earnest. She escaped from the palace and fled to Naniwa, where she is still honored as Akaruhime the goddess of light. Now the prince was wroth when he heard that the goddess had left him and set out in pursuit of her. But when he neared Naniwa, the gods would not allow his vessel to enter the haven. Then he knew that his priceless red jewel was lost to him forever. He steered his ship towards the north coast of Japan and landed at Tajima. Here, he was well received and highly esteemed on account of the treasures which he brought with him. He had costly strings of pearls, girdles of precious stones, and a mirror which the wind and the waves obeyed. Prince Amaboko remained at Tajima and was the father of a mighty race. Among his children's children was a princess so renowned for her beauty that eighty suitors sought her hand. One after the other returned sorrowfully home, for none found favour in her eyes. At last, two brothers came before her, the young god of the autumn and the young god of the spring. The elder of the two, the god of autumn, first urged his suit, but the princess refused him. He went to his younger brother and said, The princess does not love me, and neither will you be able to win her heart. But the spring god was full of hope and replied, I will give you a cask of red wine if I do not win her. But if she consents to be my bride, you shall have to give a cask of sake to me. Now the god of spring went to his mother and told her all, and she promised to aid him. Thereupon she wove, in a single night, a robe and sandals from the unopened buds of the lilac and white wisteria. Out of the same delicate flowers, she fashioned a bow and arrows. 
Thus clad, the God of Spring made his way to the beautiful princess. As he stepped before the maiden, every bud unfolded, and from the heart of each blossom came a fragrance that filled the air. The princess was overjoyed and gave her hand to the God of the Spring. The elder brother, the God of Autumn, was filled with rage when he heard how his brother had obtained that wondrous robe. He refused to give the promised cask of sake. When the mother learned that the god had broken his word, she placed stones and salt in the hollow of a bamboo cane, wrapped it around with bamboo leaves and hung it in the smoke. Then she uttered a curse upon her firstborn son. As the leaves wither and fade, so must you. As the salt sea ebbs, so must you. As the stone sinks, so must you. The terrible curse fell upon her son. While the god of spring remains ever young to this day, ever fragrant, ever full of mirth, the god of autumn remains old and withered and sad. The second story is of the Star Lovers. This is a romantic classic and it's sure to woo your heart. Shokujo, daughter of the sun, dwelt with her father on the banks of the Silver River of Heaven, which we call the Milky Way. She was a lovely maiden, graceful and winsome and her eyes were as tender as the eyes of a dove. Her loving father, the son, was much troubled because Shokujo did not share in the youthful pleasures of the daughters of the air. A soft melancholy seemed to brood over her, but she never wearied of working for the good of others, and especially did she busy herself at her loom. Indeed, she came to be known as the weaving princess. The son bethought him that if he could give his daughter in marriage, all would be well. Her dormant love would be rekindled into a flame that would illuminate her whole being and drive out the pensive spirit which oppressed her. Now there lived hard by one Kingen, a right honest herdsman who tended his cows on the borders of the heavenly stream. The Sun King proposed to bestow his daughter on Kingen, thinking in this way to provide for her happiness and at the same time to keep her near him. Every star beamed approval and there was joy in the heavens. The love that bound Shokujo and Kingen to one another was a great love. With its awakening, Shokujo forsook her former occupations. Nor did she any longer labor industrially at the loom. But she laughed and danced and sang and made merry from the morning till the night. The Sun King was sorely grieved, for he had not foreseen so great a change. 
Anger was in his eyes, and he said, Kingen is surely the cause of this. Therefore, I will banish him to the other side of the river of stars. When Shakujo and Kingen heard that they were to be parted, and could thenceforth, in accordance with the king's decree, meet but once a year, and that too upon the seventh night of the seventh month, their hearts were heavy. The leave-taking between them was a sad one, and great tears stood in Shokujo's eyes as she bade farewell to her lover husband. In answer to the behest of the Sun King, myriads of magpies flocked together, and outspreading their wings, formed a bridge on which Kingen crossed the river of heaven. The moment that his foot touched the opposite bank, the birds dispersed with noisy chatter, leaving poor Kingen in a solitary exile. He looked wistfully towards the weeping figure of Shokujo, who stood on the threshold of her now desolate home. Long and weary were the succeeding days, spent as they were by Kingen in guiding his oxen and by Shokujo in plying her shuttle. The Sun King was gladdened by his daughter's industry. When night fell and the heavens were bright with countless lights, the lovers were wont, standing on the banks of the celestial stream, to waft across it sweet and tender messages, while each uttered a prayer for the speedy coming of the wondrous night. The long-hoped-for month and day drew nigh, and the hearts of the lovers were troubled lest rain should fall, for the Silver River, full at times, is at that season often in flood, and the bird bridge might be swept away. The day broke cloudlessly bright. It waxed and waned, and one by one the lamps of heaven were lighted. At nightfall, the magpies assembled, and Shakujo, quivering with delight, crossed the slender bridge and fell into the arms of her lover. Their transport of joy was the joy of the parched flower, when the raindrop falls upon it. But the moment of parting came soon, and Shakujo sorrowfully retraced her steps. Year follows year, and the lovers still meet in that far-off starry land on the seventh night of the seventh month, save when rain has swelled the silver river and rendered the crossing impossible. The hope of a permanent reunion still fills the hearts of the star lovers, and it is to them as a sweet fragrance and a beautiful vision. The penultimate story is of the island of eternal youth, an idea that has been prevalent in myths and legends of many a lands. This is the Japanese account of this much sought after and mystical island. Far beyond the faint grey of the horizon, somewhere in the shadowy unknown, lies the island of eternal youth. 
The dwellers on the rocky coast of the East Sea of Japan relate that, at times, a wondrous tree can be discerned rising high above the waves. It is the tree which has stood for all ages on the loftiest peak of Fusan, the mountain of immortality. Men rejoice when they catch a glimpse of its branches, though the glimpse may be fleeting as a vision at dawn. On the island is endless spring, the air is ever sweet and the sky forever blue. Celestial dews fall softly upon every tree and flower and carry with them the secret of eternity. The delicate white bryony never loses its first day freshness and the scarlet lily cannot ever fade. Ethereal pink blossoms enfold the branches of the sakuranoki. The pendulous fruit of the orange bears no trace of age. Irises, violet, yellow and blue fringe the pool on whose surface float the heavenly coloured lotus blooms. From day to day the birds sing of love and joy. Sorrow and pain are unknown. Death comes not here. The spirit of this island it is who whispers to the sleeping spring in every land and bids her arise. Many brave seafarers have sought horizon, but have not yet reached its shores. Some have suffered shipwreck in the attempt, others have mistaken the heights of Fujiyama for the blessed Fusan. Now, there once lived a cruel emperor of China. So tyrannical was he that the life of his physician, Jafuku, was in constant danger. One day, Jafuku spoke to the emperor and said, Give me a ship and I will sail to the island of eternal youth. There I will pluck the herb of immortality and bring it back to you, that you may rule over your kingdom forever. The despot heard the words with pleasure, and thus Jafuku, fully equipped, set sail and came to Japan. Thereupon, he steered his course towards the magic tree. Days, months and years passed by. Jafuku seemed to be drifting on the ocean of heaven, for no land was visible. At last, far in the distance rose the dim outline of a hill such as he had never seen before and when he perceived a tree on its summit, Jafuku knew that he had neared Horaiasan. Soon he came to its shores and landed as one in a dream. Every thought of the emperor, whose days were to be prolonged by eating of the sacred herb, passed from his mind. Life upon the beautiful island was so glorious that he had no wish to return. His story is told by Wasobiowe, a wise man of Japan, who, alone among the mortals, can relate the wonders of the strange land. Wasobiowe dwelt in the neighborhood of Nagasaki. He loved nothing better than to spend his days far out at the sea, fishing from his little boat. Once, when the eight full moon rose, which in Japan is called the Bean Moon, 
and is the most beautiful of all. Wasobi Away started on a long voyage in order to be absent from Nagasaki during the festivals of the season. Leisurely, he skirted the coast and rejoiced in the bold outlines of the rocks seen by the light of the moon. But without warning, black clouds gathered overhead. The storm burst, the rain poured down, and darkness fell. The waves were lashed into fury, and the little boat was driven swift as an arrow before the wind. For three days and nights, the hurricane raged. As dawn broke on the fourth morning, the wind was still, the sea grew calm. Vasopiowe, who knew the course of the stars, saw that he was far from his home in Japan. He was at the mercy of the god of the tides. For months, Wasobiowe ate the fish which he caught in his net, until his boat drifted into those black waters where no fish can live. He rode and rode, his strength was almost spent. Hope had left him, when suddenly a fragrant wind from the land played about his temples. He seized the oars, and soon his boat reached the coast of Horizon. Even as he landed, all remembrance of the dangers and privations of the voyage vanished. Everything spoke of joy and sunlight, the hum of the cicala, the whir of the darting dragonfly, the call of the bright green tree frog sounded in his ears. Sweet scents came from the pine-covered hills. Everywhere was a flood of growing color. Presently, a man approached him. This man was none other than Jafuku. He spoke to Wasobiowe and told how the elect of the gods, who peopled those remote shores, filled their days with music and laughter and song. Wasobiowe lived contently on the island of eternal youth. He knew nothing of the flight of years, for where there is no birth, no death, time passes unheeded. But after many hundred years, the wise man of Nagasaki wearied of this beautiful existence. He longed for death, but the dark river does not flow through horizon. He would wistfully follow the outward flight of the birds, till they became mere specks in the sky. One day he spoke to a pure white stork. I know that the birds alone can leave this island. Carry me, I pray you, to my home in Japan. I would see it once more and then die. Then he mounted upon the outstretched wings of the stork and was carried across the sea and through many strange lands, peopled by giants and dwarfs and men with white faces. When he had visited all the countries of the earth, he came to his beloved Japan. In his hand he bore a branch of the orange which he planted. The tree still flourishes in the Mikado's empire. The final tale is titled, The Child of the Forest. 
Sakato no Tokiyuki was a brave warrior at the court of Kyoto. He fought for the Minamoto against the Taira. But the Minamoto were defeated, and Sakato's last days were spent as a wandering exile. He died of a broken heart. His widow, the daughter of a noble house, escaped from Kyoto and fled eastward to the rugged Ashigara mountains. No one knew of her hiding place, and she had no enemies to fear save the wild beasts who lived in the forest. At night, she found shelter in a rocky cave. A son was born to her whom she named Kintaro, the golden boy. He was a sturdy little fellow with ruddy cheeks and merry laughing eyes. Even as he lay crowing in his bed among the fern, the birds that alighted on his shoulder peeped trustfully into his eyes, and he smiled. Thus early the child and the birds were comrades. The butterfly and the downy mouth would settle upon his breast and tread softly over his little brown body. Kintaro was not as other children. There was something strange about him. When he fell, he would laugh cheerily. If he wandered far into the wood, he could always find his way back home. And when little more than a chubby babe, he could swing a heavy axe in circles around his head. In the remote hills, he had no human companions, but the animals were his constant playfellows. He was gentle and kind-hearted, and would not willingly hurt any living creature. Therefore, it was that the birds and all the forest people looked upon Kintaro as one of themselves. Among Kintaro's truest friends were the bears who dwelt in the woods. A mother bear often carried him on her back to her home. The cubs ran out and greeted him joyfully and they romped and played together for hours. They wrestled and strove in friendly rivalry. Sometimes Kintaro would climb up the smooth-barked monkey tree, sit on its topmost branch and laugh at the vain attempts of the shaggy little fellows to follow him. Then came supper time and the feast of liquid honey. But the golden boy loved best of all to fly through the air with his arms around the neck of a gentle-eyed stag. Soon after dawn, the deer came to awaken the sleeper, and with a farewell kiss to his mother and a morning caress to the stag, Kintaro sprang on its back and was carried with soft bounds up mountainside through valley and thicket until the sun was high in the heavens. When they came to a lofty spot in the woods and heard the sound of falling water, the stag grazed among the high fern while Kintaro bathed in the foaming torrent. Thus, mother and son lived securely in their home among the mountains. They saw no human beings save the few woodcutters who penetrated thus far into the forest and these simple peasants did not guess their noble birth. The mother was known as Yama Ubasan, 
the wild nurse of the mountain, and her son, Kintaro, as little wonder. Kintaro reigned as the prince of the forest, beloved of every living creature. When he held his court, the bear and the wolf, the fox and the badger, the marten and the squirrel, and many other courtiers would seat around him. The birds too flocked at his call. The eagle and the hawk flew down from the distant heights. The crane and the heron swept over the plain, and feathered friends without number thronged the branches of the cedars. He listened as they told of their joys and their sorrows, and spoke graciously to all. For Kintaro had learned the language and the lore of the beasts and the birds and the flowers from the Tengus, the wood elves. The Tengus who live in the rocky heights of the mountains and in the topmost branches of lofty trees befriended Kintaro and became his teachers. As he was truthful and good, he had nothing to fear from the Tengus. But the Tengus are dreaded by deceitful boys, whose tongue they pull out by their roots and carry away. These wood elves are strange beings, with the body of a man, the head of a hawk, long, long noses, and two powerful claws on their hairy hands and feet. They are hatched from eggs, and, in their youth, have feathers and wings. Later, they molt and wear the garb of men. On their feet are stilt-like clogs about 12 inches high. They stalk proudly along with crossed arms, head thrown back, and long nose held high in the air. And so comes the proverb, he has become a Tengu. The headquarters of the tribe are in the Oyama mountain, where lives the Dai Tengu, their leader whom all obey. He is even more proud and more overbearing than his followers, and his nose is so long that one of his ministers always precedes him that he may not be injured. A long grey beard reaches to his girdle, and moustaches hang from his mouth to his chin. His scepter is a fan of seven feathers, which he carries in his left hand. He rarely speaks, and is thus accounted wondrous wise. The raven Tengu is his chief minister. Instead of a nose and mouth, he has a long beak. Over the left shoulder is slung an executioner's axe, and in his hand he bears the book of Tengu wisdom. The Tengus are fond of games, and their long noses are useful in many ways. They serve as swords for fencing, and as poles on the point of which to balance bowls of water with goldfish. Two noses joined together form a tight rope on which a young Tengu, sheltered by a paper umbrella and leading a little dog, dances and jumps through hoops while an old Tengu sings a dance tune and another beats time with a fan. Some among the older Tengus are very wise. The most famous of all is he who dwells on the Kurama mountain, 
but is hardly less wise than the Tengu who undertook the education of Kintaro. At nightfall, he carried the boy to the nest in the high rocks. Here, the boy was taught the wisdom of the elves and the speech of all the forest tribes. One day, Kintaro was at play with some young Tengus, but they grew tired and flew up to their nest, leaving Kintaro alone. He was angry with them and shook the tree with all his strength so that the nest fell to the ground. The mother soon returned and was in a great distress at the loss of her children. Kintaro's kind heart was touched, and with little ones in his arms, he swarmed up the tree and asked pardon. Happily, they were unhurt and soon recovered from their fright. Kintaro helped to rebuild the nest and brought presents to his playfellows. Now it happened that as the hero Raiko, who had fought so bravely against the Yoni, passed through the forest, he came upon Little Wonder wrestling with a powerful bear. An admiring circle of friends stood around. Raiko, as he looked, was amazed at the strength and courage of the boy. The combat over, he asked Kintaro his name and his story, but the child could only lead him to his mother. When she learned that the man stood before her was indeed Raiko, the mighty warrior, she told him of her flight from Kyoto, of the birth of Kintaro, and of their secluded life among the mountains. Raiko wished to take the boy away and train him in arms. But Kintaro loved the forest. When, however, his mother spoke, he was ready to obey. He called together his friends, the beasts and the birds, and, in words that are remembered to this day, bade them all farewell. The mother would not follow her son to the land of men, but Kintaro, when he became a great hero, often came to see her in the home of his childhood. The peasants of Ashigara still tell of the wildness of the mountains and the little wonder that was Kintaro. These are all the stories we have time for in this week's episode. If you like the Japanese myths, do check out their three-part creation story in episodes 35, 36 and 37. Furthermore, please spend a few seconds to rate and comment on the podcast. It helps us out immensely. Also, don't forget to share the episode with your friends and family. But that is only after you've subscribed to us. Join us on Twitter and Instagram by following the handle at stories THD MDE US. That's at stories THD MDE US. Details of our social media footprints are all in the show notes. I've now run out of things to say, so until we meet again next week, goodbye.